Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. Support for the podcast also comes from Elsa's. Elsa's is now welcoming you inside for good drinks, good food, and good conversation in the heart of the Plateau Montréal. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likefillpodcast.com. Without further ado, Here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Lakeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, we'll be talking with Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying, uh, the authors of A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century. Welcome, Brett and Heather. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I'm so glad to finally have you on the podcast. Uh, so, I've been teaching on your book for the last two weeks, and it's just wonderful to actually talk to you. I gotta say, I have been looking for a book like this for, I, I guess, about 15 years um, in my teaching, and I found sort of elements in Jonathan Haidt's The Happiness Hypothesis. I, I found elements of it in Nicholas Christakis, uh, in his uh, book Blueprint, which and both of uh, both of them have been on the podcast a couple of times, and I found it in a couple of places. But yours is sort of like a one-stop shopping place for exactly for exactly what uh, I was looking for. Which is uh, just to put it very as plainly as I can is. You know, the two classes that I'm uh, covering your book in is one of them is called The Pursuit of Happiness, and the other one is called Love and Friendship. And in both of the classes, I take it as a, a given that if you want to be successful at love and friendship, if you want to live a, a happy and fulfilling life, that you need to start with an understanding of what kind of animal you are. You have to understand, like, you know, what, what are you working with? In the same way that, like, if you're building a bridge over the St. Lawrence River, you need to take into account uh, the fact that there are massive ice flows in the springtime, which, uh, so you'll have to put up concrete barriers uh, a little bit upstream of the bridge so that the uh, ice flows don't destroy your bridge in the spring. And you have to take into account, like, where it is in, in space, right? So um, you do that really well in this book. That is amazing to hear. I, I, I just want to say that the idea that you are, that you've been looking for a book like this to teach with, and that you are helping bring it to a generation of young people is is thrilling and really a large part of what we were hoping for. Yeah, and it, it seems like a book. I, this is I have so many questions here from myself and from students <laughs> right here, but uh, it seems like a book that really came out of the experience of teaching. Is that is that a like a proper guess or? Yes, that's uh, that's exactly right. You you said a couple things I want to come back to. I think they they address this point as well. 
Okay, shoot. What we were shooting for in the book, there are lots of phenomena that you can understand something about coming at it from a number of angles, but there's some place that if you stand there, you can see what the thing actually is. And so this book is an attempt to uh, to help readers discover where it is that they can stand to understand themselves with clarity. Uh, we also, of course, use the metaphor of campfire. So this book does attempt to show people where to stand. It's also an invitation to a conversation about what happens when you stand there, what it implies about how we might live. And the third thing I would say is you say that one needs to know what kind of animal you are. And this is absolutely right in the 21st century. It would not have been right a thousand years ago. Life was intuitive for most of our ancestors most of the time. And the core theme of the book is hypernovelty, which is to say that we are living in a circumstance that has radically altered from anything for which we were built and is changing so quickly that one must engage it with the conscious mind. One must understand what sort of creature you are in order to understand why things are not intuitive and what, might, what one might do about it. So that's not to say that, the, that our ancestors would have been harmed by an understanding of who they were, although they certainly would have been out of step with their contemporaries. It's just that they had not yet changed their own environment so much that it was as necessary as it is now to understand from whence they came and what trajectory they were on. Um, I, I'm actually not 100% convinced that there's not a cost if one is very well attuned to one's environment, if one's software program is very well matched for the environment that one finds oneself in, that being aware of what sort of animal you are and what sorts of uh, implications that has philosophically could uh get in the way of functioning very well um you know well i you know yeah well i mean there's there's the whole issue of um if you believe something to be true uh for you know sort of religious reasons or mythological reasons and and those just happen to align with your environment and and provide you with a fitness benefit then you know perhaps it doesn't really matter if it's true or not in you know in the sense of like actually corresponding to reality you know it, it doesn't like if you believe um you know i i remember my uncle calvin was once telling it it's he reproduced it in one of his books actually but like he was talking about how the alaskan eskimos have this whole mythology around you know the proper way to hunt certain certain animals and things like that. And you have to do all these things. And the end result is that there's a huge, huge pressure on people to uh, hunt responsibly and to share the meat when they get back with everybody and things like that. And especially to share it with, with older people and with kids and things like that. And so it has this pro-social result. I mean, it doesn't really matter that the myth is nonsense, right? It doesn't, it, it has this good. So it seems like, you know, having a knowledge, having a an ideology in the past that was perhaps emerged organically from living in one place for a long period of time might not be toxic, but it, today it is, you know, much more. Is that, does that seem plausible to you? 
Yeah, this I, I would say that's very much true. I, th- I think there is an analogy, as you were hinting at just then, John, uh, to what we bring up in the book, both in the first chapter and then in the in the end chapters, uh, the tension between culture and consciousness. And so there's certainly a lot uh, that we can talk about that is conscious in us that results in understanding new ways of doing things, creating and exploring new niches for ourselves. But one of those is, in fact, um, coming to understand what we are as humans. And so uh, I agree that that was far less important in the past, but I think that part of consciousness has always been a search for meaning that involves, you know, what what am I? What am I in this environment? And we can even, you know, I, I guess I would then hypothesize, and I don't know that this is testable, but that that is part of what your what what your dog is doing, uh, what you know what what those other organisms with some smattering of consciousness are doing is looking around the world and trying to understand what their place is in it. Yeah, I think it seems like one your your book. One of the things that it really is pushing back against, um, rather obviously at times, but implicitly all the time, is this sort of idea that you get from you know, people like Jean-Jacques Rousseau and other Enlightenment thinkers that say that we do not know what nature intends us, what our nature permits us to be, that human nature is mm. essentially limitless and we can, and I come, you know, personally from, um, I was born in a hippie commune uh, in the 1970s that was very much swimming in Rousseauian assumptions that we can transcend monogamy, we can have free love, we can transcend, you know, all these different kind of uh, stodgy old social norms that we grew up with uh, in the 50s and we're throwing this all off and we can do. And as was almost always the case with with those hippie communes, things got very ugly and... um, it ended up being a very a failed experiment for all the same reasons those uh, things usually end as failed experiments, and it ended with a lot of single moms raising kids uh, by themselves, including including my mom. So I, I grew up sort of very much um, under the shadow of the sort of the implications of people acting like there's no such thing as human nature and there's no such thing as like natural limits to you know, what is possible or, uh, you know, a good idea. And the idea, you know, what's interesting in, in, in your book, and a lot of my students remarked on this, they said, you know, normally it's only from our religious conservative parents that we hear uh, that, you know, monogamy is a good thing and stuff like that. And it's very strange to hear it from people uh, from a scientific perspective. I mean, what do you think about all that? Well, there's there's an irony in this, which is, we do not make the argument that you can derive values from scientific bedrock, right? Mm-hmm. In order to make use of the knowledge of what kind of creature you are, you actually have to say something about what your values, what your values are, what you're trying to achieve. And it's very easy to misunderstand the lessons of what kind of creature we are. And many people have done it. And actually some of the atrocities of history are downstream of exactly that misunderstanding, right? The idea that, oh, if if this is a, a competition to get genes into the future, then there are ways that you can uh, accelerate that process, you know, for example, by doing away with your competitors en masse. So, you know, we are, we are science first in our analytical framework, but we are not science first as people. And you can actually see the 
the importance of this across your life, right? You could look, for example, at your love life, and you could say, well, actually, there's an awful lot we can say about what's going on in the mind of somebody who has fallen in love. And we can say, you know, that a calculation has gone on behind the conscious scenes that the mind has focused on somebody as a particularly good reproductive prospect and that the mind wishes to bond with this person so that this person will tolerate being followed around all the time to prevent infidelity, right? You can call it mate guarding, etc. But the fact is, who wants to be married to such a person? Right? <laughs> the awareness that this is I know I don't. Right. <laughs> yeah, I don't. <laughs> yeah. But so so that's the point is we, you know, you can recognize that this is true and it is in fact if you're, you know, if you're mature enough to handle it, you can you can hold those thoughts, but they certainly should not govern the way you interact with other human beings. You should be human first. And um, this this goes to another theme of our book, which is that there is a hazard of synonymizing science with reductionism. And far too many people have glimpsed something of the truth in science and then have uh, over-applied that lesson rather than moving to the synthetic uh, and humanistic way of integrating that knowledge into a life that that does point in the direction of the the most important values. And I think uh, actually part of the reason that our book and also our you know our, our conversations that we do on our podcast are as uh, popular and I think you know powerful is what we're hearing as they are is in part that it is a scientific lens, it is a scientific framing, and we have many new things that we are offering. We are not just you know rehashing old established evolutionary truths, uh, but it is it comes in the the form of two people who who love each other. Right, so the fact that we are married um, in one way has nothing to do with the work, and in another way has everything to do with it, because it reveals uh, in our interactions that we, you know, we are people first, we are human first, we are interacting with one another as as humans, who also put most of the things in our lives through an evolutionary lens, because that has become second nature. And actually, it, it points to another important strength. And I, one thing I fear about the book is that. A verificationist who reads the book from one framework or another will find things to support their perspective, and the book's purpose is the opposite, is to integrate the features of these various perspectives that are correct with each other and come up with something novel. And so one thing, you know, a conservative reading our book will find evidence that there are aspects of our of our belief system that sound conservative, like our belief that monogamy is just simply superior to to competing uh, mating systems for humans. On the other hand, there's nothing about our marriage that looks standard. There's, we are not making an argument that we need to move backwards. In fact, we make the argument there's nowhere to go. And so uh, two people... Who, nor, nor is that a compromise. Neither of us would have wanted it. Right. Wouldn't have wanted it. And in fact, the partnership we have uh, is a symmetrical one. And people can hear that in our podcast the way we disagree with each other you know we are we are it, it, there's less of a division of labor in our relationship than is seen in many and that points to the fact that monogamy doesn't have to mean some thing from the past it's simply a description of uh, an agreement to stick together and team up let me just say one more thing before I'm sure John wants to <laughs> jump in here and speak again at some point <laughs> um you you just you brought up division of labor and I would say um 
you know, we defend, we defend the idea of division of labor in the book. And I am, I am proud to do that. And in part, um, sort of, I remember arriving there over a long period of time. You know, when we first got, we, we got together young, we'd both, you know, we'd both dated other people, but we got together young and- How um, old were you when you met? We met in high school. Uh, oh, and wow. And then we started dating halfway through college. Okay. And, um, oh, wow. and we were together for a long time through grad school and then married late in grad school. Um, so we've been together for really, you know, practically all of our adult lives. But certainly at the point, um, even that we met in high school, you know, we, Brett, Brett came to the high school I was at in 11th grade. So we were, gosh, we were 16 and we became friends right away. <laughs> That's wonderful. Right. And, you know, and that does mean that we helped form each other's impressions of the world and worldviews as well. Uh, and I, and, you know, neither of us were traditionalists. Both of us were very much progressives and, you know, forward thinking. And certainly I, if you, if you had asked me then in the mid late 1980s, uh, you know, what I had to say about division of labor, I would have been convinced that division of labor was one of the many manifestations of an unequal, um, traditionalist uh, family life that was basically bad for women. Mm-hmm. And I, I understand now, and I really have tried to look at it from as many angles and from with as much different types of research as possible, the division of labor itself is actually potentially honorable and valuable because what it does is it allows people to specialize not just on the things that they're really good at and want to do, but also on the daily stuff of life that no one wants to do, but that some people still have, you know, everyone will have their preferences and their particular dislikes of, for instance, the domestic chores that need to to get done. And there's no reason for the division of labor within a dyad, you know, within a, a pair bonded relationship or within a family at all to follow along traditional gender roles. You know, there's no reason that uh, women should be doing the cooking and men should be taking out the trash, right? You know, there, there are plenty of different ways to divide up what the labor is that gets done. But the fact is the labor does need to get done. And imagining that the best way to do that is to say, let's understand everything that needs to be done and each of us do half of it. Well, that's going to waste a whole lot more of your time and leave a lot less time for all the great things in life, like like play and like sex and like writing and like creativity and like sport and like all the other things that humans do. So division of labor itself is actually a freeing kind of thing, but we can be conscious about which chores we choose to divide and how. Yeah, mostly. I think we had, I think my, my wife and I had, we got together when we were 25 and we were in grad school actually in Baltimore when we met but so we've been together for 20 years and uh, more than 20 years now uh, but um, we initially had exactly the same as you said other like we had the toy oh we're going to split everything we we're like very progressive very kind of like everything completely and we're going to you know overturn these these silly old ways of doing things and stuff like that and we immediately well, not immediately, but soon into our marriage after uh, Annalisa was pregnant with our first uh, son, Tristan. Um, at first, she was doing the typical thing that people in our circles did. You know, we're pregnant, right? And I, I said, like, no, we're not. <laughs> like, like, you are. <laughs> like, and then as the pregnancy got, like, farther along and she was getting morning sickness, she's like, you're fucking right. Okay, I'm pregnant. <laughs> you're not pregnant. We're not pregnant. And, and I got to so, say, that's one of my big pet peeves. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's so annoying. Twice, it's like, really, no, really annoying. <laughs> yeah, it's really not. I was like, no, I'm, yeah. I'm awesome. <laughs> you're pregnant. <laughs> okay, like, but it's so... We 
we sort of fell into you know, a certain kind of gender division of labor just because, you know, if one person's breastfeeding and exhausted and stuff like that, somebody else has to take care of the house and make sure there's shopping and, you know, cleaning and other stuff done. You can't, like, so we fell into, uh, and then I think early on when our kids were young, I think we tried to do like a very sort of splitting everything 50-50, like dishes, laundry, housework, shopping, all that stuff. We tried that. And like you say, it, it ended up being like a bigger pain in the ass than it, it, it didn't really help very much because we ended up like negotiating, you know, what 50-50 looked like. And that took up, it sort of reminded me of why they they moved to no-fault insurance in California and then it kind of <laughs> spread all over the place because they realized like unless there's something really criminally wrong uh, with the behavior of one of the drivers that led to the collision, it's probably a real waste of time and money to try and obsess over, well, was it 65% your fault and 35% your fault? Like, it's a, it's better to just say, okay, let's just, you know, not address that question and just split the bill in half and half will go to your insurance company, half will go to mine. Like yeah, that's, the- that's, ex- that's exactly right. I mean, I think um, it, it's a further evidence of this sort of reductionist metric-driven worldview that we have been handed as if that's a scientific worldview. Uh, what you have to do is you have to count the thing up and make sure it's equitable. Well, actually, isn't there a bigger emergent truth of are both people in the relationship feeling well taken care of and honored for their work? And is the work that needs to be done actually getting done? You know, I, I think maybe those are the three questions. You know, it's it's all well and good if both people feel fine, but the bathroom is filthy. Like, no, okay, something needs to give, <laughs> right? <clears throat> and that shouldn't always fall to one person. Or rather, maybe the bathroom getting cleaned is always one person's job, but someone else has to do another job, which is, you know, equally unpleasant. Keeping the wolves at bay, for example. Well, yeah. you, know, that's, you, you joke, <laughs> but like, no, actually, right? Like, that's yeah. not actually, um, you know, that's not actually. It's become easier. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I, I, actually, Depending I'm going to seriously live, object here. Like, you know, this is this is exactly the the typical, and I think I would still back this objection. You know, the you know, if if the the typical division of labor has been um, women do the jobs that are always there, that never end, that always need to be done again, and that have no glory in them, and men are ready and willing when the big problem comes, but otherwise are doing none of the daily tasks, that is a recipe for a divorce, well, frankly, it's, in, a, in a modern relationship. But for obvious reasons, right. because the whole point here is that, and I, I hate that we have to borrow from the economic, because economics is really borrowing from the biology and we don't have a word for it, but mm-hmm. the real question is one of wealth creation. And the division of labor creates wealth, because two people who divide labor in a reasonable way can get more done some total. So in the hypothetical you describe, where somebody is cleaning the bathrooms and the other person is on call should wolves show up, mm-hmm. the point is there's a lot of labor left on the table. Right. It isn't being invested yeah. in something in the partnership. Yes. Well, what I find really beautiful with uh, with my wife and I is that we at a certain point just sort of threw away all of those kind of metrics and those kind of like scorekeeping things. And we just sort of fell into this pattern that we've been in for uh, for I guess about at least a decade now, but where we just sort of do um, do what has to be done, um, like we see it, and it it can who's doing what varies uh, according to like a whole bunch of different. And there's basically there's trust there, so I know you know you don't feel like 
I guess if I felt like she was a lazy person or if she felt like I was a lazy person, then we might have an issue. But that's just, you know, not the case at all. So, but depending upon who has more going on, who's exhausted, who's not, who's, so I, I probably for the last, you know, couple of years, I, I do the, the majority of the everyday tasks and stuff like that. And that's, <clears throat> you know, but that's mainly just because at this particular point in the life course, uh, I just have like way, way more energy um, than than she does, right? So, but that changes, right? <laughs> changes right. from time to time. And so if everything has to be 50-50 all the time, it seems, there's a wonderful uh, bit, I think it's in one of Franz Duvall's books, it's um, Good Natured, where he talks about going to, it's so funny, he talks about going to this conference and a guy is presenting on the importance of reciprocity in relationships and he actually puts a PowerPoint slide up on the screen where he shows how him and his wife have split up. Like they've they've got everything on this Excel spreadsheet. Oh, and no. it's not it's <laughs> they've got oh, no. like the tasks down to the like minutia. And then it's not even just like all the household tasks and all the different things. It's like uh compliments. Uh like Ooh. like they've they've got everything, everything down there. And and he was uh Franz was there with his wife and they just turned to each other and they're like rolling their eyes, like, what the fuck is this? And then they found out that uh he was on his fifth marriage and they yeah. found out <laughs> they found out a couple of months later that his he and the new wife were divorced. And so his his takeaway point in that chapter is that um an obsessive compulsive focus on 50 like total kind of equality of results 50 50 all the time is just does not work in love or friendship it's just uh, it's a uh, recipe for disaster absolutely and you know i can I, i'm i'm actually a big fan of of spreadsheets and of looking <laughs> at at just sort of long-term things about what you know what i'm planning and i never has it occurred to me to bring that into you know the relationship that it's it's just so it's so misunderstanding what the emergent properties of connection between you and another human being are and it also you know even even with an interest in in spreadsheets and thinking through okay you know what's the timing if i have to do 20 of these things in the next 20 weeks what's the right order you know what should i introduce first etc you know just like curriculum building you know there are a lot of places where it can it can be fun if you're of a certain type of mind to really drill down on some of the details but you also want to leave so much space for serendipity and within a relationship especially if you're talking about not the things that just need to get done because they're things that you know because the floors get dirty and someone needs to clean them but the actual the actual engagement with the human being like the reason you're with them in the first place if you're applying metrics to that yeah, you're gonna. He's gonna be on his sixth wife any day now. Like that's well, just not gonna last. <laughs> sure, it, it it implies a kind of stinginess because all relationships, especially marriages, are effectively communist, right? Mm -hmm. And the point is, it's not supposed to be equal work. It's supposed to be a kind of full investment in a partnership. And if the point is, oh well, I've equaled your work, and now I'm out. Right then, the point is you've misunderstood this, and you've overextrapolated the fact that there is something economic in all relationships. Right, if you have a friendship in which you're constantly putting in more than your friend, right, the point is that will create tension. And if it goes on, and your friend doesn't get the hint, 
Um, if the friendship is, I mean, you know, we can obviously build a scenario in which it would be worth it to participate in such a friendship if what your friend brought to the table was actually disproportionately valuable, blah, blah, blah. But, uh, but in effect, if somebody was holding out on you and, uh, you know, you, you would, you would split. The partnership wouldn't work. But inside the relationship, the point is how far can our team get is a question of how much do I have to invest and what is the best way in which to invest it? Well, and there's a way in which, in relationship, you shouldn't, you should never, ever, ever start with the metrics and the counting and the divvying up, right? That's not where you start. And in fact, at the point that your brain starts to do that, starts to tell you, God, that's the third time this week, right? Or for God's sake, why do I always? And you know, sometimes you're just wrong. Sometimes you're misleading yourself when you have those sorts of reactions. But at the point that your brain does start to count on you, that's actually an indicator that, you know, maybe you're being unfair, or maybe there is actually a, a pattern right. that needs to be resolved. So I would say that the, the metrics within relationships are actually an indicator of a problem within the re- relationship, hardly a solution that you should Im- employ in advance. But let's, let's take a, a particular example, right? There's effectively an insurance policy inside of a marriage, right? If you get cancer, I'm in it no matter what. Right? Whatever mm-hmm. it is that you need. Whereas if I get pregnant, you're not also pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> no, if you get pregnant, I will keep the wolves at bay no matter how many there are. But, Fair enough. Um, okay. but the basic point is look, you know, a insurance in the economic sense is at best, when it actually works and isn't delivered in the crappy way that we get it, it's a risk pool, right? The idea right. is we don't know who in this population is going to need more than average in terms of care and we don't know who's going to need less but if we're all better off to be signed up for hey whatever i need i'm going to get you as well and that means that those who are healthier subsidize those who are less healthy inside a relationship this exists informally and the the point is we all understand that you're better off you don't want to if you're going to get cancer you don't want to be alone right you may need someone to care very very deeply about you and for you and in a relationship you don't know who's going to be the person. Hopefully it's neither of you, but the point is that relationship contains an insurance policy that is never described. True. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I, I think, you know, I always tell my students that that's that's a very important thing to establish early on in a in a committed relationship where you're either, you know, married to somebody or effectively married to them, like living with them and t- being like exclusive and stuff like that is that you should um, establish that that kind of you know, sort of like a, like a mini communist like state, like you say, and I, I don't think there's anything weird about that. I mean, I I know Nassim Nicholas Taleb says in Anti Fragile, he says, you know, I I I adhere to different political systems depending upon the scale. So at exactly. the level of the family, it's a com. I want communism. Um, at the level of municipality, I want something that is, you know, like very, very democratic, you know, very kind of almost like kind of progressive at the level of the, and and he goes up and he wants, you know, libertarian, very small state federally. And he wants, you know, so he says you can, depending upon the scale, you want to have a particular kind of organization. So I think that that makes sense. But I I know like we, uh, my wife and I, we had a, a joint bank account, you know, right from the beginning. And we all, all the money was just sort of, seen as common property it was just deposited into there and it was as much mine as as hers and if she was not working for a couple of years after she finished her phd and she was trying to find a position um it wasn't as if you know i was supporting 
the family or something. It, it, it was never thought about that way. It was like, you know, whatever I'm making is is half hers and whatever she makes is half mine. Like just, you know, in every way. And and likewise, if I was, you know, out of work at one point, uh, you know, it was never it was never an issue. And it seems like a lot of arguments um, in relationships, like in marriages, come because people don't seem to grasp what the terms of the agreement are, <laughs> like yeah. almost until it's over, you know, it's, and then they realize that, oh, legally, it really was half hers. <laughs> right. Yeah, it, it was the whole time. You just weren't acting like it. You know, we, we did the same thing. We just defaulted into it. And uh, it always struck me as, as odd when I would hear about relationships where there were separate bank accounts. And me too. People were it really seems like so strange. Even splitting grocery bills and such. And it, what it seemed to me like was that they were preparing for the inevitable split. Like it, yeah. I'm certain that that sort of approach would make the split easier. But if what you're doing in your relationship is preparing for when you won't be in a relationship, there's a really good <laughs> sign that maybe you're not in the right relationship. Yeah, it, it's supposed to be complicated to get out of your relationship. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, one of the things that gets you through the rough times. <laughs> yeah, I had like a buddy of mine. He told me that uh, he's he's in his 80s now, and he said that when he was a kid, uh, his dad would give his mother an allowance, like she was a kid. Like she yeah. would get an allowance. He had all the control over uh, the finances. He had, you know, and she was in the subservient status and she would have to ask him for like money to buy groceries and buy stuff like that. It was just very. Ugh, one, of, one of the many pasts we have no interest in going back to. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But I would say I, it's actually, yep. it's a good, it's a good test case because the past that we are uh, I think all three of us frightened of here is an intermediate past, right? Mm-hmm. It is an economic past in which these things had to be formally hammered out because if they weren't, then the ambiguities became lethal. And so if you go, you know, before the invention of currency, this becomes much simpler. And the problem is that if you think about how relationships, you know, the human animal is driven by these deep emotional states that are triggered by some set of calculations we cannot see. And the point is, when you sign up for such a relationship, you're probably madly in love, which means you're effectively high on drugs, right? You're not (laughs) seeing clearly. Your mind has fooled you, and hopefully the other person's mind is fooling them in a symmetrical way. I mean, they're good drugs. Oh, they're the best. Yeah, They're the best. However, the point is, it's not the right state of mind to hammer out the details of a contract. And so at some level, the relationships that do work are ones that when the drugs wear off, there's still a love relationship there that's durable enough to support it. And people can figure out then what the details of the relationship are. And, you know, you'd be a fool to think total symmetry was a good idea. You'd be uh, a fool to think, you know, it's a net calculation. It's really a team. And, you know, what you find out over the early phases of such a relationship is whether or not your values align well enough that you end up both putting enough into the relationship that everybody feels well taken care of and better off than they were alone or better off than they would be with someone else. And, you know, that's that's the stuff of a, a durable a durable partnership. Yeah. I have a whole bunch of questions from students here and I want to get, I want to make sure I get to a couple of them. So, um, first one is, uh, this is, hold on a second before you ask, these are, these are undergraduate students. Yeah. It's, well, it's basically, it's a system that we have here called the, they don't really have it where you are. It's, they have it. It's called the Sejep system. It's kind of equivalent 
to the, an undergraduate degree here is not four years, it's three years. Mm-hmm. And you do, like, there's this intermediate thing between high school. So high school in most of North America um, finishes in grade 12. Here it finishes in grade 11. And so you go to this intermediate thing, which is kind of like a hybrid between community college and university. Wait, and if I get uh, this right, your high school goes to 11? <laughs> yes, it goes to grade 11. Sounds like it's much better than ours. <laughs> uh, yeah, they, uh, the, so you, it goes to grade 11, and then you do the equivalent of kind of your last year of high school and your first year of university is done in this thing called a, a CIGEP. Right, right, and that's uh, so that that's where where this is. But uh, so they're they're about eighteen, you know, between seventeen, eighteen, nineteen are the the ages. So it's it the exact right age for your book. <laughs> it's like it's really really good. But a couple of them asked the question. They were very intrigued by uh, an offhand comment you made in the chapter on I think it was the chapter on love and relationships, where you said that. Um, although uh, gay men and lesbians are both homosexual in the sense that they are both kind of attracted to the same sex, uh, that they're actually quite distinct in terms of how they they evolved. And you just left it there as just this like <laughs> adorable teaser. And they're like, what the fuck? Like, okay, so they really wanted to know. Can you sort of just uh, explain what uh, what the two different trajectories that led to um, homosexuality in men and homosexuality in women and what, what they are. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to let Brett take that. But first I'll say, uh, you can imagine, given the scope of the book, how many things we had to, you know, ended up on the cutting room floor. And of so course, rather course. than never mention homosexuality at all, which is obviously an important and enduring part of, of human behavior and history, we left that in and did not mean to antagonize anyone, but knew that we might. Oh, they weren't antagonized <laughs> at all. No, I, they were, I, they I, were merely yeah. intrigued. So, I think it worked I mean, perfectly. We, we now yeah. know. Um, yeah. So here's the thing. I'm not going to uh, take a crack at both because the uh, gay male side is a much more difficult puzzle and, uh, sorry, ladies, a much more fascinating puzzle, which needs it, it really needs a full treatment somewhere, and I've been dying to do it, and it, it hasn't happened. But Well, and it's um, much more rare in other species as well. Right. So the, the, let's do the female side, <clears throat> which we'll leave the teaser maybe uh, – at least halfway teased somewhat somewhat satisfied <laughs> um lesbians are not hard to explain because lesbians have everything one needs to successfully raise offspring except for the ability to create a zygote and so if you imagine a circumstance and there will have been many in human history in which men are in short supply for one reason or another it does not make sense that selection would leave females who have enough resources to produce offspring with the inability to do so simply because they can't find a mate. And one solution to this problem is, given that human offspring are so labor-intensive to raise, is for women to team up with each other on the raising of offspring and to simply source a gamete, which isn't hard to do because... For women. Yeah, for women, right. <laughs> for women, it is not hard to do because the evolutionary bargain of uh, producing an offspring that one does not have to raise is uh, 
of high value to males. So the, the basic argument is there are many circumstances in which a population that is capable of growing or needs to maintain its level can do so with females teaming up and delivering enough parenting to successfully raise offspring uh, as uh, couples of women. Um, and obviously that same argument does not apply to men, which is why the male homosexuality question is uh, much more uh, difficult and fascinating. And just to the point about other species, uh, you know, we have, for instance, lesbian gulls, right, who uh, are uh, having sex with male gulls, uh, but male gulls don't stick around. And so you have these communities of female gulls who are collectively raising uh, offspring together and also um, having, you know, being intimate with one another. And I mean, even there, there are even traces of this in the very few, you know, in some of the very few lineages of vertebrates that have gone parthenogenetic. That is to say, there's some lizards in the American Southwest, these nematophorous whiptail lizards, um, where you have whole species uh, that are asexual. There are no males. They're all female. Uh, and they can produce young without, uh, without having sex, except that they actually need to engage in what appears to be sex with the other females in order to prompt the endocrinological, uh, the, the beginning of the endocrinological pipeline uh, in order to uh, drop an egg. And so, you know, you have sexual behavior in species between females um, that is linked to sex that is linked to heterosexual behavior, but that is between females. Yeah, I, I love that you mentioned these, you know, examples like whiptails, which, by the way, I've caught those things. They are so fast. Like, oh, yeah? God, they are <laughs> unbelievably fast. Uh, but they, uh, you know, whiptails and Komodo dragons and various other kinds of anomalies. Because, you know, one of the things teaching in the humanities for the last 20 years, uh, one of the tendencies I've seen in the humanities that really kind of bugs me a lot is, and I, I see this a lot of my colleagues in their course outlines and the way they cover things in the books, is that there's this idea that, okay, if we can find an exception, like some, and, and this is, goes back at least as far as Margaret Mead, uh, this, yeah. this tendency in the social sciences and the humanities, that if we can find like this exceptional circumstance that this sort of invalidates general patterns, that if we can... Um, you know, and it, it, it's such an obvious error in logic, but it pervades so much like, okay, we can find the na that uh, don't really have marriage and they have promiscuity and, you know, with women, you know, we can find these random examples of uh, rare exceptional species or exceptional human groups doing something strange. Well, the fact that we've found this, this one um, example negates like any of the general patterns. And, and it seems that that's one of the many things that your book is pushing back against really intelligently. I mean, it, do you see that pattern as well? Oh, yeah. Uh, in fact, one of my favorite phrases is one that I think most people who use it don't know what it means. Uh, it's the exception that proves the rule. And very frequently, I'm not sure that that shows up in our book or not. But, I don't think so. Um, one thing that is often true is that when you do find an exceptional pattern and then you chase down what's really going on there, it actually reinforces the overarching pattern. In other words, it's exceptional in more than one way. So, for example, 
if we say sexual reproduction is necessary because the variation in offspring serves an important biological purpose, and then we look and somebody says, well, what about whiptails, right? How do whiptails do it? Well, the answer is actually whiptails do have sexual reproduction, even the asexual ones. They have it at the edge of their range. And so what you have is a mechanism whereby genetic diversity makes it into this clonal population. We see the exact same thing in aphids, which are asexual, except I believe at the end of the season where they have one sexual generation. And so the point is those exceptions prove the rule. And in the case of, for example, societies in which males do not invest in their own offspring, we see something called the mother's brother phenomenon, which is that if the certainty of paternity drops below a threshold, it makes more sense for men to invest in their sister's children than their own ostensible children, because even though their sister's children are only 50% as related to them as their own children would be, the degradation in the certainty of paternity means that's still a better way of advancing their own genes into the future. So exceptions that prove rules are actually extremely useful, but you're right, there's this pathology in which people embrace only the one element in order to sort of free themselves from the obligation that comes from the general pattern. Well, I... um I wouldn't use the word pathology, maybe in some cases, <laughs> but um, yeah. I, I, you know, I started out in the humanities, actually. I was a literature major at the beginning of college and wanted to be a, a writer and was really, you know, was driven into the sciences in part. And, you know, I, I had a background in math and science and, and loved it, but, it, you know, it didn't, it didn't come as a total surprise, but I was really driven out of the study of literature. I just wanted the reading lists, ultimately, and I didn't want to have to sit through these endless discussions um, that were totally untethered to any sort of underlying reality. And the modern language I would use for that is they had no evolutionary framework. They were using no evolutionary lens. And so this tendency of, yes, I'm afraid that people in the humanities and social sciences are more likely to do this, but plenty of people in biology don't really understand evolution either. The tendency to say, ah, I have an example. I'm going to give you this example that would seem to falsify your claim. And you know, what, what the evolutionary lens tells you is there are almost never going to be static evolutionarily stable strategies that are true in all conditions, right? Conditions change. Evolutionary adaptation is context dependent inherently. There is no most fit. Just because the color of your skin is dominant at the moment does not mean that is most fit in all situations. Just because you have more money right now does not mean that that is an indicator of your fitness across all conditions, right? So this context-dependent truth is missing from people's analysis. And I think they just don't know for the most part. You know, when humanities people, for instance, say, well, you know, but what about clownfish? That proves that men can change into women. <laughs> that is exactly <laughs> the kind of thing I'm talking about. Right. Like, like, exactly. No. <laughs> They'll bring up these random examples and say, you know, it, it, it seems like they don't... Obviously, if you say all swans are white, right, you can, you know, as Taleb you know, famously says in The Black Swan, right, you, if you say all swans are white, that statement can be negated by just producing one black swan. And boom, now that, that statement is no longer true. But if you say the statement, which is pretty much every single statement in your book, by the way, uh, if you say a statement akin to, you know, the vast majority of swans are white, well, now if you find a black swan or like a neon pink swan or whatever, it, like somewhere else in Australia or somewhere, if you find like a, like an exception to that rule, uh, it's it doesn't 
shake the rule necessarily at all. <laughs> because, well, it's okay, fine. It's a wonderful, diverse world with a lot of vari- variation. But it doesn't mean that the general pattern of, you know, most swans are white is, is true, right? But there's this sense, this, this sort of glee, like a, like a certain kind of, like, I don't know, 10-year-old boy who's memorized all the dinosaur names and stuff. Like, they'll <laughs> yes. find, like, the clownfish thing or something, and they're like, ha-ha, I have found a, like, ha-ha. You know, I, I've, I've figured this out, and now, like, I've negated your Now whole, I've got you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's completely, like, I found this, like, one thing, you know, and that, that proves that all your ideas about how, you know, sex and gender work or how societies work or how you know, jealousy works or something like whatever i i've proven you wrong because of this exception and that it, it's uh i don't know i mean it's very hard in my experience maybe I, I haven't figured out the way to get through to people on this but i find it very hard to disabuse people of that notion that finding these um these exceptions is really exciting <laughs> well actually i think i think you may have hit on exactly the issue right? If I say all swans are white and you find a black swan, you have indeed proven that I'm wrong, okay? Mm -hmm. Because it's inductive, right? The idea that males either can or can't on a whim change into females is a different type of claim, right? So the clownfish, again, is an exception that proves the rule. The rule is that being male and being female are two different strategies and that they accompany two different types of gamete, right? The clownfish is exceptional in the sense that an individual animal goes from one sex to the other. It is not exceptional to the claim that large sessile gametes come with one type of behavior and small motile gametes come with the other because, in fact, the fish goes through two phases in which both the behavior of the animal and the gamete type changes. Effectively, as when the sex changes, so too does the gender. Right. Uh, Very well said. So the point is, you know, I think there is a universe of questions in which a single example is falsifying, but they're not very meaningful. Does it matter that all swans are white? Maybe for some purposes. And were those purposes important, you certainly would want to know if there were black swans, right? But from the point of view of implications for how the world functions, that's a very different set of questions. And the the deductive logic surrounding gamete type and its relationship to sex and gender uh, is as true in clownfish as it is in anything else. And so really the question is, are we in a realm where a single example that seems exceptional is falsifying or aren't we? Okay. This is uh, another question. I've had a bunch of questions that are similar. They all sort of, I've, I've grouped them here in my notes thing on my phone as like, uh, does nature want you to be happy? <laughs> like, uh, but there, there are a bunch of questions along those lines. And, and one of them, kind of the best That's a good one, one by the way. Yeah. It, they're, well, all of them are under that category because they're basically asking that question. But the best one is from uh, this one young woman in my pursuit of happiness class. And she uh, one of the things they had to read was uh, Freud's civilization and its discontents. And and she drew a really interesting parallel between your book and Freud's civilization and its discontents. And she said, well, basically what, uh, what Brett and Heather are arguing is similar to what Freud argued, that there is a, a basic mismatch between our psychology and our 
our sort of in our modern environment, the civilization. And, and obviously, civilization is mostly a really, really good deal. Um, however, it has these drawbacks. And one of them is that uh, there's always going to be this kind of irreconcilable gap between what civilization requires of you and what you want to do. And so that uh, it, in order to both... Um, you know, both Brett and Heather and and Freud are arguing that uh, to be happy in our society, to some extent, you have to kind of hack your own uh, nature or hack your environment. Because if you just go with the flow, uh, well, you're probably not going to be very happy. Because in the same way that are the system that we live in right now, the form of of capitalism and consumer capitalism, GDP goes up when people. Get divorced and need lawyers and therapists and are getting our houses. GDP goes up when all sorts of really bad things happen. And if things are humming along smoothly, that's actually not terribly great for the economy all the time, right? And that likewise, uh, you know, nature, uh, evolution wants you to reproduce and wants you to do these various things. And uh, you're most likely to do those things if you're really longing and unhappy and, and, you know, you want more and you want to go and do stuff. So, uh, yeah, I guess just sort of that, that basic question, like, do you think, obviously I'm speaking uh, metaphorically here, but like figuratively, but do you think nature wants us to be happy or do you think that being happy is only possible if you essentially kind of hack the system? Well, I want to adjust the question a little bit. I'm not sure I agree that there's a gap between what civilization expects of you and what you need. Uh, in order to be fulfilled. I think it's more of a chasm or an abyss or something much larger and <laughs> more troubling. Mind the chasm. Yes, mind the chasm. <laughs> <laughs> mind the chasm. That's, that's a good title for something. Um, look, the first part is actually quite easy. Does nature want you to be happy? Does evolution want you to be happy? No, it wants you to want to be happy. In fact, you being happy is bad if you stabilize it. Right, because a happy critter it's a derivative. is not a striving critter, and a happy critter is therefore not likely to find opportunities that have been missed. Uh, so, no, happiness is is a carrot on a stick hanging in front of you, and actually, um, it is built to be unstable. The hedonic treadmill is real, and so if you want to pursue something valuable, I would certainly argue stepping away from happiness and in the direction of something more like fulfillment and meaning is a very uh, wise choice and a bargain. Um, does, that, does that make sense? That basically yeah, this absolutely. Is a, yeah. This is a trick of the mind designed to get you moving in the right direction. But I will say that an ancestor living in an environment that they had had time to adapt to in other words, that their ancestors knew a great deal about, would not have find have found the level of conflict between what it is that they need to be fulfilled and what their environment delivered them. It would all have been much more intuitive, and the pursuit of happiness, which is real, uh, would have been a reasonable guide to value. That's what it's for, right? Avoiding pain and discomfort and seeking pleasure and reward. Those things, when you're in an environment that you know, drive you to do things that are actually useful for 
your genome. Now, not everything your genome wants is honorable. In fact, a lot of it is despicable. But from the point of view of how the individual would feel, having those things as good proxies is very valuable. And what we have are incredibly poor proxies because of the degree of novelty in our environment. Okay. Uh, is anything you want to add to that, Heather? No, that was great. That was great. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, one of the one of the concepts that a number of my students had it snagged them a bit because um, I, I have a you know always I, I always have sort of a I don't know maybe a ten twenty percent sometimes even more than that um, of students in my class who are coming out of their fairly recent immigrants to Canada and they're coming out of very, very conservative, very sort of religious households, very traditional, uh, where kind of gender norms are very fixed, where, you know, being gay is like totally not cool. Uh, whereas, you know, so they, they come out of this and they're in the midst, when I get them in my class, they're in the midst of kind of rebelling against all of that and really sort of embracing this, all the new possibilities of living in a first world, uh, you know, 21st century place, right? And like, so, um, and they're very kind of against anything that smacks even remotely of, uh, of, of sort of conservatism. And so quite a few of them early on in the book had uh, trouble with the Omega principle. Could you just sort of like sort of lay out for our listeners what that is and why you think that is absolutely a defensible assumption or heuristic? Sure. So the Omega Principle, we, we chose a Greek letter because it evokes pi, pi which specifies the precise relationship between the diameter and the circumference of a circle. And our argument is that the relationship between epigenetic phenomena, including and most especially culture, and the genome is equally obligate. It's not something we have a choice about, whether we like it or not. The relationship has two parts. The first part is that epigenetic phenomena are inherently more plastic and capable of more rapid change than genomes, and therefore they uh, are evolutionarily superior in a sense. The adaptive capacity is higher. At the same time, they are subservient to the genome in the sense that the genome creates the landscape in which there is an, a set of epigenetic phenomena, and the genome can therefore shut it down if what takes place in culture, for example, is counterproductive to the gene's interest. And what this means is that we can look at things like religion, and we can say at the very least, because these phenomena are long-lasting, they are expensive and complex, that they are serving the interests of the genome, even if the information isn't housed there in the slightest. Now, from the point of view of your, the students you describe who find something objectionable about this, the problem for us moderns is that we don't live in the environment to which those conservative beliefs were adapted. And therefore, mm -hmm. this is not an argument that we should embrace those beliefs. It is both dangerous to stick to them when they are no longer relevant, and it is dangerous to abandon them on the basis that we live somewhere new. We are in inherently perilous territory because we can't say what the function of all those beliefs was, and some of them are truly out of date and irrelevant. Some of them are worse than that. They're now counterproductive and dangerous, and some of them are still as important as ever. 
And sorting between those categories is vital and far from simple. I guess the one thing I would add is that um, the Omega Principle does rub, especially people with a background or whether or not they know it, whether or not they have a formal background in sort of social science, the wrong way. Um, you know, they will say things like it's biologically essentialist, evolutionary mm-hmm. essentialist. <clears throat> and, you know, to which we will say, uh, no, it's not. And really, if you reject the idea that culture, for instance, is evolutionary, you need to generate an alternative explanation for what that is. And none has been generated, which means that what you are doing by rejecting it is in fact black boxing and leaving it to faith. It is in fact a kind of religious faith to say, that can't be evolutionary, we don't know what it is, but clearly it's something else. So you know, we see this as not only explanatory of the of the most types of things that we see in the world, um, but and it wouldn't have to be the second thing if it is the most explanatory. It also seems to be fairly progressive. Actually, it's actually it's freeing in a liberal sort of way because it provides an explanation. You don't need to keep searching for all the other explanations for what produces culture the way that anthropologists, for instance, do and sociologists, and you can say, okay, we've got. This, this one set of fairly simple processes that have created all of this complexity. Let us do what we can to understand and, and to, therefore, um, embrace that part of our lives that evolution has, has handed down to us that is beautiful and reject that which is not. But don't we have a much better chance of doing so, of actually getting people um, to a more productive future if we understand what we are? Yes, and I would just... Uh finally say that empirically speaking it is wrong it is unjustified and also unkind for people who have a scientific worldview to approach people who have a religious worldview as if they're fools which has been the pattern and what what you will discover when you recognize that the omega principle really doesn't have any choice but to be true it's very close to a tautology that when you approach religious people from this framework and you say, look, that book of yours is full of wisdom. The question is, how well does it apply today? You are in a very different conversation, a much better conversation. And, you know, if we can return to an earlier theme, the amount of wealth that is created by not sidelining people who have a traditional worldview and dismissing them as if they are literally infected with a mind virus not only is that ni- not nice, but it's foolish. It leaves a tremendous amount of capacity on the table that we could make use of if only we can figure out how to talk. Okay, one more thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> one more thing that that prompted me, because I, I, I feel like you went, you went sort of a little orthogonal to maybe the main point I was trying to make, which is that um, being upset by the Omega Principle may indicate that you didn't hear us when we said do not fall prey to the naturalistic fallacy. Do not imagine that just because something is evolutionary, it is good, or there is moral imperative behind it. The Omega Principle tells us, for instance, that war is adaptive, and that rape is adaptive, and that female genital mutilation are adaptive. And I think everyone can agree that those are horrors. As are the strategies against them. Yeah, the adaptive. strategies against them are not horrors. No. The strategies against oh. them are also adaptive. Right. So, you know, we can all agree that those things are adaptive and that they are horrors. Um, fewer people would agree. Um, well, 
But we, we are claiming with the Omega Principle that they are all adaptive and they are horrors. We are also arguing that the strategies against them are adaptive and not horrors. And so by understanding what we are as fully as possible from an evolutionary perspective allows us, empowers us to actually pick and choose among the very many evolutionarily evolutionary strategies that we have inherited so as to become better people. And on the seventh hand... Um, <laughs> On the really? seventh hand. <laughs> it sounds like you're about to go into the book of Revelations. Here. Something like that. <laughs> and then maybe the seventh have, seal was opened. I, I should have so. picked a different. On the 13.1's yeah. hand, um, the, uh, I think there's a degree to which there's also just a kind of petty academic territoriality that keeps social sciences from being willing to recognize what role evolution is playing in their disciplines and i get it but i don't think we have any obligation to honor it and so you, you can sort of see this in the reaction of historians to guns germs and steel guns germs and steel is a tremendously powerful quite simple idea about why most of the kinds of things that we like to focus on in history are probably not all that relevant to figuring out what happened and why and you know it's not surprising that historians uh, got their knickers in a twist upon the discovery of this, but it doesn't mean that their arguments against it had much merit. The fact is, there are there is big history, and it does have something to do with uh, mismatches in technological capacity at the time that these things happen. A lot more than it has to do with the decisions of individuals and their particular, you know, defects of character or anything like that. Um, so. Yeah, he, he just does that again. Jared Diamond just does that again and again with his books. He just he pisses off uh, academics because he takes this very large view. And in doing that, he he sees things that in retrospect, after you read them, you're like, that is so fucking obvious. Why didn't people like it just seems so obvious and you can't believe like, for instance, in his most recent book, at one point, um, he, he talks about the American Civil War and he compares it to uh, a lot of other civil wars that have happened you know, throughout human history. And he immediately sees certain things about the American Civil War that actually are really striking and really amazing and very kind of not standard, not what usually happens um, after civil wars. And But th this is something that I, I happen to be very immersed in the literature on the American Civil War. And absolutely nobody mentions this. <laughs> like nobody mentions these things that when you take a comparative view and you you don't get sort of locked into a particular kind of subdiscipline where everybody's just sort of citing each other and they they don't really have any interest in thinking outside of that subdiscipline. I mean, it does allow them to drill very deep down on certain issues, and that that definitely has a benefit. But it also means that you miss things that are just right in front of your nose. Right, if you're if you're that kind of like laser focused on on one little thing, and right, you know, it's it's interesting that you bring up comparative and and the the prospect of comparison because you know evolution, like geology, but like really no other science, uh, is explicitly historical, and so it to some degree is beholden to different standards and it plays by different rules than a non-historical science like, say, physical chemistry. And it does have real similarities to the actual study of history. But one of the things 
<clears throat> one of the things that we do, well, actually, I can think of two, and there's probably many more, two explicit domains of evolutionary biology by which we try to understand what we are, are explicitly comparative. I'm thinking of comparative anatomy, which I used to teach, uh, wherein you bring in, uh, usually in my labs, it was cats and sharks, and over the course of many weeks, uh, dissect the, say, the muscle systems. I, I got to say, personally, that was like one of my favorite <laughs> little bits of the book. I found that absolutely fascinating that, that you know, th- things like the the shape of the aorta and the, the sort of the route that a particular vein takes can vary dramatically from from individual to individual in, in the same species. And that right. was so, so amazing. Like that must have been just mind-blowing for your students to actually see that. And I think, you know, I think it was for me the first time because really the point and, you know, the, the comparative thing here that I was going after is the more standard point with regard to comparative anatomy. You see, you know, you wouldn't have any way of knowing if you're just looking at humans that many of our structures are conserved all the way back to sharks and how many of them are actually wildly different even from cats, right? And then there's also the comparative method, which is over in phylogeny space, which is where you are trying to understand um, what patterns are actually more broad than the patterns that you're seeing in the particular, say, family of mice that you're, you know, or like, you know, clade of mice that you're trying to figure out the relationships between by doing explicit comparisons with other clades. And this, you know, explicitly comparative approach has this very long history in evolution. And I think what Jared Diamond is doing, exactly as you pointed out, John, is uh, is bringing the comparison of uh, bringing a comparative approach, which, you know, he comes out of biology himself uh, to history. And yes, it thwarts historians who only are focused on their own little piece. It's also, you know, again, I, I hate to focus on the uh, the failures of the academy, but at some level, disciplines like governmental programs end up becoming uh, effectively jobs programs. And mm-hmm. you know, a discipline whose purpose is to answer the questions of history may in fact be cryptically hostile to anything that cuts the Gordian knot, because of course, what will the historians do if those questions are so easily answered, especially with tools that they didn't train with? And so... Uh, you know, one has to take with a grain of salt the hostility of any field to a method delivered by an outsider to that field that appears to be highly useful at seeing into the puzzles on which they are focused. Mm-hmm. The the next question is um, a little bit a little bit difficult, <laughs> but I mean, I have, I have to deal with these uh, these students all the time, and so I this is painful, but. Um, uh, she says, you know, my generation uh, is has very elevated rates of depression and anxiety. At least half the people I know are now or have been on some kind of powerful medication. Uh, most of my friends are presently seeing a therapist or have seen a therapist in the past um, based on your knowledge of what kind of animal we are. Why do you think we have more depression now? Uh, than any generation that we know of in the past. It's several things, and it's very, it's very sad, and it's very alarming. And we certainly saw this as well in our students. Uh, I did, you know, I, I, I saw health histories for my students every 
quarter that I took them on field trips, which is to say pretty much every quarter. And uh, those numbers that you just shared sound familiar. Uh, part of, there, there are a lot of factors. There are a lot of factors. Uh, the three easiest ones that, uh, that to some degree Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff talk about in The Coddling of the American Mind uh, are um, the changes in parenting styles that seek to protect and coddle, indeed, um, protect children from all risk and adventure and exploration such that um, they will not know how how to do anything or what to do or what they might be good at or what risk look like, looks like at the point that they become 18. The rise in screens, and not just screens as babysitting devices, which um, can create a kind of lack of empathy for the person on the other side of an interaction if what you've done often is interact with screens that cannot respond to you. Uh, and of course, social media is further deranging. And then uh, the rise of pills to treat conditions rather than recognize uh, that conditions are often uh, themselves symptomatic of something that should be changed in the environment. So this is, of course, a, a drumbeat throughout the book, this, our objection to reductionism, our objection to if you, have a th if you have thing X, what we need to do is treat thing X as opposed to figure out why you have it. The evolutionary approach is to understand why and to try to change the why rather than just get rid of the, the symptom, the X. So unfortunately, it is also true that many of the drugs that we are giving children even, but especially teenagers and young adults, are themselves deranging, they are themselves addictive, and often they come with a kind of language that if you just think about it doesn't make sense. So very often I've heard young people were told as teenagers, well, you just have a, a hormone imbalance. You have a serotonin imbalance. Imbalance is the word that is used so often. And uh, maybe it's possible, certainly those things do happen. But the idea that humans have become the most dominant species on Earth when there are so many of us with imbalances is really, really unlikely. Far more likely <laughs> there are other things going on. There are real indicators that, you know what, things are off, especially in the last 20 months. But, you know, things are off. And we have a generation coming of age now for whom it's going to be very hard to know what kinds of value they're going to have in the world. What can they do that's going to make an honorable difference? Will they be able to make enough money to buy a home? You know, there, there are real challenges that are different in both quality and quantity from the challenges of the generations that came before. So anxious, sure, there's a lot of good reason to be anxious and pissed off at the generations that came before and, you know, really maybe even borderline catatonic in terms of I don't know what to do. But the solution that is being handed to them by the generation, you know, our generation and, and the boomers is too often here, take this pill that'll fix you, that'll this will fix you right up. And in fact, the pill is much more likely to further derange them. So if I can uh, point to the sort of inversion of reality that uh, this all implies, our, our book is really about hypernovelty having uh, afflicted all of us and created pathologies across our physiology, our psychology, and our social interactions. And when that happens... 
you've got a choice, which is you can look at what's actually causing the problem and say, actually, this is, this is difficult to address because it involves some kind of restraint that we are not good at exerting, right? A, a full embrace of all new technologies as if they're going to be safe is foolish. So what we do is we have a kind of inverse diagnosis. Instead of diagnosing what's actually wrong, which is that they're, that effectively all kids are now being delivered an unsolvable puzzle and that one of the responses to an unsolvable puzzle is paralysis and that paralysis you know is effectively what depression looks like right instead of doing that we say oh the problem is the person and then we wave our hands and we say there's something inside them maybe it's a chemical imbalance that has caused you know this paralysis when the point is anybody given an unsolvable problem will find themselves uh, you know, doing something counterproductive or unproductive in response. And I think, you know, our book, I hope, will be understood as a, a, a call to arms against the thing, the root cause of all of the dysfunction and disease, that root cause being the mismatch between what we are and where we are. Um, so that that doesn't provide a simple answer for for your student who asked this question, but I think probably it's a much more healthy approach because, frankly, I think all of us are sick of being told that the problem is a bunch of little defects in us rather than civilization has led us somewhere that we're just not suited to. Yeah, that that whole thing about like hyper novel, you know, the hyper hyper novel nature of our. You know, present day society and the world that we're living in, uh, the built world that we've created. I I think that is that's got to be like the central concept in this book. It's so 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 sad. Like it almost like I'm sure probably somebody along the line in the publishers must have recommended that you put that in the title somehow as a <laughs> hyper like I don't know surviving a hyper novel world or something like that. Because it, it is really if you get that concept early on, which Thankfully, unlike a lot of uh, academic books, which sort of bring out the central concepts, you know, 50, 60 pages in, and then you're like, you kind of should have mentioned that right away. You bring that out like right away, which is great because it kind of sets the tone for, um, you know, so much so that, you know, I've in, in one of my classes, I just I had them read two chapters of your book, but I, I had them read that beginning part first <laughs> just because like it's it really sets the tone for the entire book if you don't have that uh, you know clear in mind but uh, this, this question is from well you'll see why it's anonymous <laughs> uh, from an anonymous uh, the student in question wanted to uh, send it uh, like just put it in my uh, office door <laughs> did not want to like you know have his name associated with it but uh, he was talking about the part where you say how porn is really bad for for kids and for people in general and that it messes with your mind and that it, it leads to uh, sexual autism uh, as you put it um, and and just so our listeners are clear you're not you know you're not making fun of autistic people or anything it's a it's a concept but um, so this guy he he says that um, yes you know like many uh, many guys of my generation and girls as well. I grew up on porn, um, but I don't feel as if it has made me sexually autistic. I recently got a girlfriend for the first time in my life. We've been together for a year and a half 
now. Uh, we're very much in love, and she was my first. I was her first, and I don't feel as if porn has messed up my sexual impulses and my. I do not ask her for uh, anal and other things like that. That it happens in porn. Uh, but more importantly, it seems to me that the hallmark of a mentally healthy person is that they can separate fantasy from reality and they know the difference and they don't. And that what makes somebody crazy is precisely that they blur the lines between fantasy and reality. So do you think uh, your problem with porn uh, may just be a function of your age and values? No. First of all, your your student may well be correct that they have gotten through the minefield and come out intact, and that's marvelous. Not everyone does. Um, so the harm of porn doesn't need to manifest in every consumer of it. But the other thing I would say, which I think is likely to be true even in their case, is that, I mean, if we could just be adult about this, humans are fascinated by sex, and they spend a lot of time thinking about it. The porn industry delivers something into that space that removes the need for creativity. And so the development of a properly adult sexual mind actually depends on the fact that nobody scratches that itch for you, that you have to figure out what is supposed to be there in fantasy space. And the always having something in easy reach uh, does not allow you to figure out what you actually do think. And what's more, it presumably synchronizes an understanding of sex across a generation, synchronizes it to a signal that's being delivered based on market forces, not based on human needs. So, you know, it sounds like your your student is comparatively healthy, but I would say the caution remains. I would also say it is not, uh, I, I get the concern about, oh, this is just you being stodgy, but the mm -hmm. point is we, we draw a distinction between erotic content, which is produced because somebody is compelled to make some kind of a statement, a sexual statement, and market-driven, which is what porn is. And it's the fact of allowing the market to dictate what you think and feel uh, that is the concern. It's not the erotic content itself. Erotica has a real place, a long-standing one. Uh, it's honorable and valuable. And, and so, no, I, I don't think there's anything to that critique. I'll yeah. add two things. Um, yeah. uh, terrific. Like, really congratulations to your student for not being one of the people who's been thus affected. Um, again, as Brett alluded to, no one should be making the mistake of imagining that their one experience uh, negates a pattern. You know, it's like, yes, it's like pointing out that you're very, you know, and I think the example we give in the book in a slightly different context is the existence of your very tall friend Rhonda does not mean that <laughs> men aren't that. on average taller than women, right? Um, yeah. And, you know, for, for anything that actually does harm in the world, you know, it's very, very rare that you've got something, you know, even DDT doesn't kill all the bird's eggs, right? <laughs> you know, like mm -hmm. you know, mo most of these things that are really, really toxic actually don't kill everything. So um, we don't 
we don't pretend to make an estimate of, you know, how, you know, how much porn you would have to watch or, you know, how many people will be affected. We, we don't know. Um, but you know, we remain, uh, we remain really pretty certain of this hypothesis. And with regard to the question of fantasy versus reality, you know, isn't he, your, your student asks, isn't it a hallmark of a healthy mind that they can tell the difference between reality and fantasy? And yes, to some degree, but the hallmark of a mind of a organism such as we have with an incredibly long childhood is that what is happening during childhood is that you're learning how to be an adult. And so if you give inputs into a mind during development that are the opposite of, you know, in the case of, we would argue in the case of porn, of what it is that you would actually like um, to have as, as a sexual sexual suite of behaviors as an adult, uh, you would have no ability to necessarily, um, or you might at least lose some of the ability to tell the difference between reality and fantasy, because what went into your head, the only thing that was going into your head before you were actually able to be sexual with another person yourself was a fantasy scape. So sure, in some cases, the inability to tell reality from fantasy is the sign of, uh, of a mental illness. But if what you've been fed through childhood is fantasy, how would you ever begin to learn how to tell the difference? Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, actually. I, I, one of the books that I had them read as well is um, Stephen Marsh's book, uh, The Unmade Bed, uh, The Truth About Men and Women in the 21st Century. And he has a whole chapter in there on porn. And he says, um, you know, in the 1970s, there was this uh, you know, and I, I was actually raised thinking this was true. It kind of made intuitive sense to me. They, they said that um, porn was linked to violence against women, that it, it increased, you know, rates of sexual assault and things like that, and that porn was a kind of a, a training ground, and then people would graduate from porn to actually doing violent acts in the world. And it seemed, I don't know, it just seemed very plausible to me when I was a kid when I heard that for the first time. But uh, uh, what he he points out is that this has actually been very well studied. And it turns out it's not true that, in fact, the places places in the world that consume the most amount of porn, places like Japan, Sweden, and a number of other places actually have very low amounts of violence against women. So there doesn't seem to be, not only does it, does there not seem to be like a necessary connection between porn and real world violence uh, there it actually seems to go in the other way around right so uh, but what is interesting is you point out and I think this is a much more much more weighty and plausible critique of porn is that well it's not so much that it necessarily is going to lead to violence it's just going to make it really hard for you to have a healthy sexual relationship with a real person that's that's right. And I guess I would say I intend to, but I have not yet looked into the research on porn and its effects in society. You know, there are, you know, population level effects versus individual level effects and it's different kinds of research. I don't I'm not familiar with it. I've heard those results. I've you know, I've heard the change in conclusion uh that we are supposed to accept and I don't uh I am not yet convinced, but I haven't yet looked at the research myself. Yeah, I would I would add a couple things. One, this is a in general, I'm not very fond of the idea that correlation doesn't imply causation because there are conditions in which it does. But in this case, 
the the structure of the studies uh, inherently runs the risk that there are a great many things that go along with access to porn and that something else may be causal, like better policing or uh, more liberal societies in which reporting of sexual violence is uh, less stigmatizing of women or something like that. But I, I would point out, Naomi Wolf made this point in an essay many years ago about the fact that the effect of porn was deadening rather than... Uh, than creating a, a landscape of violence. But frankly, I, I don't buy any of this anymore because we are hearing from far too many young people, especially young women, about what increasingly sounds like a hellscape of consensual sexual violence, right? Women who report that men want to beat them up, right? That mm -hmm. rape play has become very common. And so... You know, do we and the count young that? Women are feeling compelled to say yes because that's what they think they should do. Right, and because they are in effect in competition for male attention with a lot of other women who are saying yes. So, I, I you know, I don't quite know how we file this. Consensual violence is obviously very different than uh, violence that is non-consensual. Is it acceptable? I don't think it's it's acceptable in the slightest. And what I can say with some certainty is that it is not part of a healthy sexual relationship. So whatever is taking place um, is not positive, and really we need to, to look at it carefully and say, is, is this the kind of people we want to be? And you know, maybe uh, more to the point, what happens if we normalize this behavior? Do we really expect people to beat each other up in the bedroom and then treat each other uh, with respect in the workplace? Is that, is that what we're... I mean, it doesn't sound very likely to me. Yeah, that, that sounds like a fantasy right there. It sounds like yeah. nonsense. That's, uh, yeah, well, there's uh, a book I read, I think it was last year or earlier, this, earlier on this year by uh, Tracy Clark Flory, who's a, a sex writer, and the book's called Want Me, uh, A Sex Writer's Journey into the Heart of Desire. And it, you just made me think of that because like, that book is just so completely disturbing places where she talks about like how uh you know early on in the book she talks about how she grew up in san francisco with these very kind of progressive hippie parents and stuff like that and they were really kind of all about female empowerment and not objectifying women and stuff and at a certain point when she's about 12 she stumbles upon like her father's porn collection i think she like is on his computer and she looks at his search history and so she ends up like going and seeing you know what stuff he's jerking off to i guess and like and she's so completely horrified that it goes totally against like his stated progressive left values <laughs> like it's all it's not at all like he's always telling her uh, oh, you know, you're beautiful exactly the way you are. And, you know, your mind is most important. And your sense of humor. And then, you know, he's not looking at that kind of stuff, you know, on his search. And it's just a very strange, strange. And then she talks about um, exactly what you're saying, that the the expectations of, of, you know, doing like oral sex to the point where you're choking and actually kind of throwing up a little bit. And, and that this is supposed to be part of the regular you know, hoops that you jump through in a regular sexual encounter. And where are people coming up with this? I mean, obviously they're getting it from porn, right? They're not like, yeah. I don't think that would naturally occur to a lot of people as like a hot thing to do at all. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think one thing that will maybe be a little bit generational uh, is 
when when the three of us having this conversation were growing up, uh, you know, obviously porn existed, but it was a totally different landscape. And we can all remember early fumbling around with people and not knowing what to do and how awkward it was and weird and a little embarrassing and very exciting and, you know, and barring, you know, I, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't have any horrible experiences barring, barring horrible experiences, non-consensual experiences. Um, it's still confusing and weird and awkward and, you know, even can be humiliating, even if you feel really great about it and can be like, there's just all these emotions and if you have in your head, ah, there's a script, there's a bunch of things I can do, I know what I'm supposed to do here, and you know, and, and he or she also knows what's supposed to be done. And so, you know, we're coming into this sort of already having read the book, as opposed to actually let's figure this out together. Cause although people have been having sex for millions of years, you know, you and I have never had sex before. And let's figure this out. Let's figure out what feels good. It's going to be different for different people. And there are some universals, but there's a lot of differences. And that discovery, that discovery from actual scratch is amazing, but it's mm-hmm. also awkward. And, you know, try, I think, I think part of what porn does bizarrely is it gets you to bypass the awkward because you walk in feeling like an expert the first time. Right. It, it gives you something to do. And the problem is that this is what I was saying about sexual creativity and the adult sexual mind is that because it gives you that easy thing and you don't develop the other thing at the point that you might realize actually there's something hollow and wrong about what I'm getting out of pornography you don't have the the tools that might allow you to figure out what you're supposed to be up to uh are have atrophied and so the one thing I would say and I know this will sound implausible to people who think porn is no big deal but it's a little bit like having a conversation. It's actually not a little bit. It's 100% like having a conversation with addicts, right? If somebody is addicted to Coke, let's say, mm-hmm. right? and your point is, look, there's a life without this that's actually better. That's essentially certain to be true. But it does not look true to the person who actively needs this thing and will experience some kind of withdrawal as it disappears from their life. And, and will find emptiness where it used to live. Right. They will feel, you know, in the case of uh, cocaine, they'll feel a physiological penalty. But a psychological penalty is in many ways even worse. And so it is not surprising that many people's reaction to, hey, that porn stuff is really not good for you is, what are you talking about? You're stodgy, you're a prude. When in fact, the answer is, you have no idea how little you need that. You just really don't. Mm-hmm. My my main problem with it, especially for people our age and, and relationships, is that I think, you know, anytime you have, uh, you know, you have these basic sort of needs that need to be met on a regular basis, things like, I don't know, eating and sleeping and uh, relaxing and and obviously sexual desire is like you know one of those as well and I think if you have an opportunity to share that with your partner with the person you're then that just like brings you closer together all the time it's sort of like the epicurean aphorism uh, a pleasure shared is a pleasure doubled like so you should one of the epicurean principles and ancient Greek philosophy was that you should uh, never eat alone. Like, never eat alone. 
never anytime there's something that is about fulfilling a fundamental human drive or need, you should try and do it with other people because then it's a it's a twofer. <laughs> you, you sort of you you fulfill that that natural kind of need, but you're doing it with people that you love and care about, and so it's bringing you closer to them. And so I think um, the people that I've who've confided in me and said that they felt like they were like almost addicted to porn, like they were spending way too much uh, time on it. I think that's that's sort of emotional energy that you're stealing from your spouse. Because usually, yes. like, when you have that desire, it, I don't know, you know, if, it's like a typical thing, right? Like, after you, uh, if you're having regular sex with somebody you're with, then you're way more, like, tolerant. You're way more kind of, like, likely to put up with their bullshit. <laughs> like, you, you find them much less annoying. You know, you, you know, you just, it has all these, like, wonderful kind of glow effects, right? And if you're attracted to somebody and you want something from them, right that you want affection you want like then once again it's gonna it's gonna incline you to be a little more charming a little more interesting a little more kind of kind and you know so you're if you're taking that out of the the mix then um i don't know it it doesn't seem to me like it's very good for the relationship you know now i think you're you're actually in some ways being too careful about this point right this is a key to life the idea, I mean, if you think about it, right, the, the, liberal, um, the liberal conventional wisdom here is something like, you know, masturbation is normal, right? There's no reason to feel bad about it, blah, 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 blah. Lots of stuff that's actually true. But here's the point. Let's suppose there's some sort of stigma that goes along with it, right? So that there's something that prevents you from scratching your own itch, which means that that itch needs to be scratched by your partner, which then incentivizes your being in sync with that partner enough that they want their itch scratched and you want your itch scratched and you're on this adventure together, right? So in some sense, what we've got is the market delivering something that satisfies a human need without a human, and it is preventing us from engaging with other humans at a high level. It's it's turned our relationships trivial. Okay, I'm going to push back on that a little bit because you jumped right to the market after starting with something that is a fairly standard religious injunction, right? And I think the you know the religious injunction, oh, don't masturbate, often is paired to also no sex without the intention of procreation, which is very much antithetical to our message. You know, we argue in the book, for instance, that um, you know, of course, food is originally for sustenance and sex is originally for procreation. But in both of those cases, we've made it so, humans have made it so much beyond that. And so, you know, your argument, I just, I, I think you didn't quite finish the circle on the argument. So, you, you know, you were saying, you know, to <clears throat> not only is watching porn taking sexual energy away from your partnership, but so too even is masturbation to some degree with, you know, to much much less dire effect, but you know, and I don't think I don't think anyone here would argue um, that that you should, you know that that masturbation is is bad. But your argument is actually every sperm is sacred. <laughs> well, this, this is this is this is, this is exactly <laughs> it. Like that's that sounds like what you were saying in the absolute, and what you were arguing actually is consider that your partnership 
is, you know, hopefully an intellectual partnership, a moral partnership, also a sexual partnership. And that it is that the, you know, the, the closer you are in that regard, the more of your sexual energy you send into your partnership, the better everything else about your world is going to be. Right. Okay. Yeah. And that, me, and that me, by the way, me. is actually, I've, I've heard that exact message from, uh, from a number of religious leaders. I've heard that from a Pentecostal minister friend mm-hmm. of mine. I've heard that from a Hasidic rabbi friend of mine. They both said that uh, their objection to masturbation, specifically like married men, like, you know, jerking off to internet porn or whatever, like their their objection was not like, oh, every sperm is sacred or anything silly like that, that it should only be for procreation. That That's sort of like a certain kind of, um, I guess, maybe Catholic, yeah. uh, Catholic of a certain kind would say that, but they had a much more reasonable thing. They, they said, well, you know, it's just that you are, uh, as the, the Pentecostal minister put it, you're stealing love from your spouse. So you're, you're basically, you're fulfilling this like need and the fulfillment of this need is supposed to be constantly bringing you closer together and you know reuniting you all the time and so you're you're taking that away and so all they, right you too though I, I have to defend yeah. myself here because i wasn't <laughs> making the argument that masturbation is bad or unnatural and i certainly wasn't making any sort of argument remotely like uh sex is inherently for procreation nor do i think that religious traditions that say these things mean it in this literal and absolute sense the point is a and i'm not even defending the idea that there is anything that should be shameful about masturbation for example but the point is in a world in which people feel some shame about it and therefore do it less they are more likely to put that energy into a relationship and the issue about sex and procreation is a perfect exception that proves the rule here because what has changed in the past Prior to reliable birth control, sex was a very high stakes activity because the expense of raising a human child is so great that having a human child without the commitment of a partner to help raise it was a very dangerous behavior and therefore created this um, basically high bar that had to be met in order for women to consent to sex. That changes at the point that you have reliable birth control. And so what we are in is in the hypernovel future where our, our wiring and our programming is out of sync with the reality of sex. Sex is transformed by birth control because it allows for family planning. And the point is we don't know what to do with it. And one thing you can do with it is you can say, oh, Sex is no big deal, right? It's just another activity, right? That's mm-hmm. wrong. It's a bad idea, but it's not surprising that people land there because once you remove the threat of producing a child from this behavior, it sort of seems like, uh, you know, an amusement park. But, but anyway, the point is, you know what's really important? Human relationships. And you know what imp- relationship is really important? Your, uh, your romantic relationship. And you know what one of the keys to making that romantic relationship work is? Is needing your partner sexually. And you know what gets in the way of that? Is the market delivering you all sorts of alternatives. So anyway, something along that thread. Yeah, well, there, there actually, there was a, a lot of questions that, that I got from students that pertain to exactly that point that you were 
that you just mentioned, which is that um, we, you know, on the one hand, it seems obvious that for relationships, all kinds of relationships, to attain kind of depth and and meaning and to be really something amazing in your life, it requires both neediness and and being okay with your own neediness and with somebody else's neediness and needing and and being needed and stuff like that. But in the other direction, they're constantly being told that they're supposed to be completely self-sufficient individuals who don't need other people and that uh, and it's, young women especially are getting this message a lot that you shouldn't need uh, other people any other people uh, but especially men you know a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle and all that right so that uh, there is this kind of this tension right that uh, it seems like in order to have good relationships <laughs> you have to be like okay with uh, you know as the poet David White puts it right you have to be willing to ask for help and to be vulnerable but it's hard to do that when you're being told um, by that that doing those things makes you um, a bad feminist or a bad like i don't know libertarian (laughs) whatever yeah i mean there's god there's there's so much here and i think part of part of it is that the world that we are moving away from is one in which you know, men gave allowances to women, right? Just like your, you know, your friend, your friend reported in his mm-hmm. little household, and that's horrifying. And you know, one way to make sure that you never end up back there as a woman is to make sure that you have enough autonomy and enough control over your own fate um, that um, that you, know, you, you will you will never be stuck there again. That said, you know that a, a woman needs a bicycle like a no. <laughs> a, woman a, a woman does need a bicycle. We can all agree on that. A woman needs a man <laughs> like a fish needs a bicycle. Um, I think that's Steinem. I think that's Gloria Steinem. And I I I enjoyed that uh, saying quite a lot growing up. You know, growing up with uh, my my mother and her business partner and best friend, who were you know very successful business people. Um, and also, she was home a tremendous amount for me and my brother, and you know, had fresh baked cookies and was a tremendous cook. And you know, so I, I kind of got the best of of both worlds. Um, and part of what I was was seeing was exactly, you know, it wasn't the the seventies and and eighties were not that far from sort of Mad Men era of, <laughs> you know, women staying home and being given an allowance. And that sounded like hell on earth, and that sounded like a recipe for a, a kind of narrow, restricted life out of which you maybe could never escape. And in that light, yeah, don't imagine that you need some particular story that you are being given, because there are a lot of stories that have not yet been written that might be yours. That said, it's most likely if you're a woman, that you will end up being most productive both for yourself and in the dyad and then the family that you form with another human being, and that's likely to be a man, just because heterosexuality is, of course, the norm. The vast majority of people end up being heterosexual and end up benefiting from having a pair bond with whom they, they share life. So so I guess I would say that many of these these strictures that are coming down that are being handed down to young people come down with no context, no context Hmm. at all. You know, obviously a fish doesn't need a bicycle, but a fish doesn't need a bicycle, (laughs) not quite in the same way that a woman doesn't need a man. Can a woman make a go of it alone and be single for her entire life and do some awesome stuff? Yep. Sure. 
is she most likely to be her most productive and most joyous, um, deciding in advance that that's the life that she needs to make for herself? No, certainly not. Uh, I would, uh, I'm going to not push back. I'm going to push stronger here because I think what's really happened, first of all, people say a lot of stuff and you know, the stuff that sticks is often stuff that sounds like it probably ought to be true. There's no reason to think it actually is true, right? And so this idea uh, that, you you know, it's a little bit like people say stuff like, well, if you're going to love someone else, you really have to be able to love yourself first. I don't know what the hell that means. I'm pretty sure it's total <laughs> nonsense, right? And this, this idea about your autonomy is equally nonsense. The fact is human beings are in inherently not autonomous. You have been robbed of a lot of what you were due by the change in the way we live, right? You are built to grow up in a community of people you know well, whose strengths, weaknesses, trustworthiness you would know like the back of your hand, whose the meaning of the words they used would be very, very clear to you. They would partner with you in various ways in the, the challenges of life that you would face. And we have been turned into these little nuclear families that have moved away from each other. And so we have to do everything, you know, within that unit. And now we're being told that even that unit is suspect. And, you know, what's more, why do you need it? Because you can source everything you need uh, out on the open market. And it's just garbage. You're, it's degrading the thing that is most important in life, which is your connection to other people who matter to you deeply and to whom you matter. And, you know, I think, the, the thing that young people can do for themselves that is the biggest upgrade they can make to their life is they can figure out, and it you know, doesn't matter, gay, straight, doesn't matter. You need to start with the one person that you trust and you value. You need that ride or die, right? That person has to exist for you in order for you to think clearly. It is part of being a complete human being. And if you don't have that, um, that's bad i would you know i would then suggest uh, this is going to sound frivolous but get a dog you need you need connection this is part of being a complete human being and um, anybody who's telling you it's optional is doing you disservice and i would also point out the idea that this is liberating for women is actually in some ways cryptically an argument for something that serves men that don't really want to invest in partnerships but do want access to sex because what women who feel that they do not need a partner are likely to do is they are likely to engage in sex with no obligation or commitment. And so, you know, whose interests really are being served by that belief? Okay, I, I yeah, agree with Stephen that. Colbert had a wonderful little bit once on the before when, when he used to be funny. Uh, when he had like, the Colbert <laughs> report, you remember like the Colbert report, like when he was yeah. pretending to be like this kind of right wing Fox News like conservative guy. He had a hilarious bit, which I've actually shown it in classes a couple times because it's just hilarious. And he's sort of having this kind of sotto voce like kind of voice to the audience. He's like, "We've actually convinced women that pole dancing is empowering." <laughs> <laughs> And he goes yeah. into this whole thing, this whole thing, and he's like, yeah, we've got them. He goes, this is like the best thing ever. And he's like, just, you know, don't yeah. anybody tell, you know, tell them that, to stop doing this. Like, no, that's, that, that's exactly right. And I guess the, the only thing I would, I, I agree with everything you both just said, but uh, in response to you, Brett, I, I agree with that. And I think, I guess I'm not, 
I'm not disagreeing, but saying understanding, especially especially for young women, understanding that actually um, men too, but this just looks different for men. Understanding that you are actually probably interested in finding a life partner and having that front and center in your mind is going to make you less likely to find that person. You have to do a sort of, call it self-deception, call it, you know, hide it from your conscious self and, you know, go out and be in the world. Like figure out what you are, figure out what your passions are, what your skills are, what kind of difference you want to make in the world. How are you with your particular skills and background and interests going to make the world a more interesting, better place? And in doing that, you are much more likely to end up finding the person with whom you will do it than... And this is, you know, a bit of a stereotype, but it's a stereotype based in 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 truth. Then, if you are focused primarily on, I must find the one. I must find the man. I am a woman who is looking for a man. It's desperate, and a desperate person. It's it's is, it's not just desperate. I remember being like in my you know late teens and early twenties, and and meeting women like that, and it actually I didn't I couldn't really sort of articulate what I found annoying about it. At the time, but I, I realized, you know, as I got older, why I found it annoying. It's not just that it's, I mean, it is desperate, but it's also, in a way, it's so sort of almost like objectifying or something. Because you feel like, okay, you just want a man. And it's almost like, well, any suitable any one man. will do. <laughs> and so right. it's like, oh, yeah. great. It's like, it's it's sort of like uh, a kind of a mirror image, you know, broken mirror image of the the guy who sort of, hits on like every every decent looking woman in the club and uses the same lines on all of them. And so you get the feeling in that situation that like the woman he ends up with at the end of the night doesn't really matter. You know, anybody right. will do in the dark. And that that kind of like, uh, we, we the word we used to use for them was husband hunters. You know, we would see yeah. them come into the party and be like, oh, there's the husband hunter. And like, they're just kind of scanning for like, okay, who's in the engineering department? Like, like they're sort of like going around and it, it to a guy in that situation, it just feels very instrumental, and you don't feel special at all as an individual. You feel yes, like somebody right. is and, just, yeah. And and the woman is then defining herself as she who seeks a man, and therefore will be defining herself if she finds one as she who has a man. And it's inherently subservient. It's inherently regressive, frankly, and. Uh, and in no way empowering and enhancing of her full abilities. So, you know, just like you, the guy, are not going to be as interested in such a woman because what is she bringing besides the fact that she's female? And uh, she also will, you know, no doubt have crisis after crisis of identity at the point that she realizes actually that having a man or having children isn't the everything that she was told it was. And so, you know, to yeah, I'm not... You know, I'm not disagreeing, Brett, with your, you know, w- with with what you're saying. That you know has been accused. You know, we have been accused of sounding conservative because we say, well, you know, the diet is important and family is important. Well, yes, it is. It absolutely is. But if you if you grow up defining yourself as that is the thing that I'm going to be, where did you go, right? Like, what what is it that you are that is the unique thing that is going to come out in the world and be productive? And how can you have that be true? 
and have the person whom you may not have met yet be true. And then you come together, you find each other, and then there's a third. Then there's a third entity, and that's the two of you together. And how can the three of you, you, the other person, and the combination, go into the world and do your best and be your most amazing selves? Well, I, of course, agree with this. And I think, frankly, there's something narcissistic about the idea of I'm I'm in search of a husband, right? That, you know the it's it's at the very least it's transactional and the right. idea mm-hmm. is if yeah. you were to operationalize uh the advice i was trying to deliver the way to do this is not to go out looking for a partner it's to go out into the world trying to make yourself the person that the partner you would want will find irresistible right to go out and invest in understanding things or, uh, you know, becoming capable of things that are worthy of a partner. And, you know, I've said elsewhere that, frankly, I think as great as the advantages of birth control are, and the advantages are tremendous, especially for the equality of women, of which I am uh, a huge and longstanding uh, advocate, um, but it broke the logic of civilization because it eliminated, because basically made sex common. And so it eliminated the motivation to strive and be worthy of a partner. And so in any case, what I would argue is becoming, having a reason to become worthy of somebody with whom you would want to spend your life is the way to do this. Just as it's, you know, you shouldn't go into the world trying to become a writer. You should go into the world trying to figure out what's worth writing about and then write about it, right? Yeah, um, there's a, a wonderful line in, uh, I think, John Ralston Saul's book, uh, The the Doubter's Companion, where he talks about uh, how if you want to understand why baby boomers are so nostalgic, it's because they lived through the decade between the advent and the pill, of the pill and the advent of AIDS. And for one decade in all of human history... For the sex had no consequences, <laughs> so but then the party was over, and so they live in this constant sense of sadness and regret that that's God. But uh, I think I we have time for one more question, and I so I think the the last one it's a very big one, unfortunately. But um, is we will try to what, answer it yes or no. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Is that and basically where do you think school? Is going because I mean clearly the way the model of school that that we have right now in North America is seriously flawed for a lot of reasons and there, there's these movements you know Google and um, Apple uh, Microsoft there's been a number of very large corporations that have waived their requirement that you have an undergraduate degree in order to apply for an entry level position. And this is happening in in many sort of trend-setting sectors. And it's going to, if it hasn't already, it's going to seriously mess with the business model of higher education. Um, Good. So, yeah, I know. I say say good as well. Um, But where do you think education is is going to go in the next, let's say, um, 10, 20 years? Or where should it go, perhaps? Is the After it's question. done going down the toilet? Yeah, this is, yeah, this is, yeah. This is well, a many decades long question, right? Um, mm-hmm. Well, what, you know, one thing I would say, and I, I'm not trying to be sycophantic here, and I don't really know, you haven't said anything to us about your particular pedagogy, but um, I suspect that what you're doing in your classroom is an excellent model. 
for higher ed. It sounds like it, given the kinds of questions your students are willing to pose to ask to us and, and the kinds of ways that you describe interacting with them. That is a big piece that is missing in most of higher ed. The actual, and, and again, I mean, maybe this is just a, exactly a continuation of what we were just talking about. The the primacy of the relationship and the connection between not just student and faculty, but students and other students, the fact that you are in community together and that it is that, and that every single person in the room brings something that someone else, that no one else in the room does. And that basically there, it is very likely that everyone has something to offer that would be of benefit to everyone in the room. That is not pretending that the faculty, if they're any good at all, doesn't have unique things to offer and that they shouldn't be up there and you know delivering more things into the heads of the students than, than the other way around. But this sort of sta- sage on the stage model in which the students' brains are like empty vessels and you open them up and you pour stuff in, that's about knowledge transfer and it doesn't help with wisdom. It doesn't help with wisdom at all. So, you know, part of it is focusing on relationship. Uh, Part of it is making sure that uh, young people, students are not engaged in the physical world where you get feedback from physical systems that cannot lie to you and cannot be gamed. You can't claim, I made the the car run, um, but you can claim, I won that argument, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. So I this is this is going to sound you know there are a lot of there are a lot of ways I think to fix higher ed and uh, again we could go on forever about it. Um I used to have what I thought was an incredibly low bar rubric when we were teaching at Evergreen for what faculty um should have and uh, I think it is both a very low bar and that many educational systems don't allow for it and that many faculty therefore don't manage to find it which is that um basically two things any faculty who's um worthy of being put in front of undergraduate students and and sharing their minds for any amount of time should have a knowledge of something that is worth sharing with those students and an ability to communicate it. That's kind of two things. And B, what I already said, a fundamental belief in the humanity of their students. And if excuse me, if behind closed doors, the faculty are denigrating the students and it becomes clear that they actually see this as just a paycheck and don't regard the people in front of them as people, they don't have any business being in the classroom. And yeah, unfortunately, that's so, that's so, so, so true. Yeah. And, and it's, I especially and it's think it's funny. I, yeah. I, it, it's especially appalling when it's faculty that I know that they are, I mean, if they were sort of, I don't know, like really hardcore elitists, you know, and stuff like that, well, then maybe I would find it objectionable, but at least it would be kind of consistent with their pedagogy. But a lot of them, you know, they espouse these very sort of progressive, like, I love humanity, I love like, like stuff like that. Well, how come these are representatives of humanity in your classroom? <laughs> and like, yes. you have like utter contempt for them. Yes, and you you don't a, like you don't like them you don't appreciate them, it's it's odd it's, yeah. it's no it's it's the contempt and and you know in in a relationship you know that contempt is the is the harbinger of doom and that's the same thing in the classroom yeah I mean yeah. even even if it's just indifference the idea is it's, it's inexcusable right and it's it's it it's evidence that you don't really care as Heather said it's just a paycheck because if you did care then obviously tuning into what your students actually think is is a key to educating them. Um, but I would say, look, school's been broken and getting worse for a long time. And, you know, we have two kids now, high school age, and the degree to which 
uh, succeeding in high school is now about either accepting wrong things or holding your tongue is amazing. And my feeling is actually, you know what? School is dead. Long live the enlightened mind. Personally, for a couple days now, uh, I've been toying with the idea that actually school, the part where we teach you things that we know really well, like how you do long division, that can be done in a way that scales, right? We can have the most brilliant teachers teach you that, and they don't necessarily need to be in the room with you. But what we need somebody in the room with you for is uh, Heather and I have uh, an ongoing discussion, which I think is going to ultimately land somewhere interesting about the terminology. But I'm toying with the idea that mentorship and teaching are actually distinct phenomena, and that what we really need uh, deeply caring, highly insightful people to do is mentor, which is to say, teach the things that cannot be instructed linearly and directly, teach the things that have to be modeled and for which the student has to figure out how to do this for themselves. Um, so that that is my hope, is that we will separate these two things. That is, that is things. like almost exactly the way I view teaching. I view it absolutely as, as mentorship, that I'm, I'm helping, you know, in my small way to civilize the, the next generation. <laughs> like, and it is sort of model a certain way of being in the world that, uh, that you know, more or less works and, and you know, you, you, it's very much about like modeling and mentorship. And I, I stay in touch with former students for years after they've been in my class. And that's you know that that seems to me very much like part of the deal. I, I'm yeah, just going to try and squeeze me at all. Yeah. Let me just say that doesn't surprise yeah. me at all. Excuse me. So do Brett and I. And it was often shocking to some of our colleagues that that was true. That you would yeah. That you would. It's in completely touch with yeah. It's it, my my wife does the same thing. She's a sociology prof, and she she does exactly the same thing. So we, I would also I, I think it's important to point out also that this is the answer to the question of why not a single student of ours turned against us as Evergreen melted down was that they knew us well and we knew them and they knew full well that what was being said couldn't be right. Yeah, no, that's a great. Now, this is just, I'm going to try and squeeze this one in under the wire here, but uh, it's connected to the school question. Have you considered making some sort of interactive online course based on this book? Like it could be kind of in 12, 12 weeks or 12 modules or something like that. And it would be, you'd have like a bunch of taped lectures. They would get the book, they'd pay a certain amount to enroll in the class, and then there would be some actual interaction with the two of you um, as part of it. But have you considered doing something like that? Do you think, because I think I've had a number of students in my class who said they would, um, I didn't think of this, (laughs) one of them thought of this, and they were talking about these master classes and things that you can find online, and they were talking about kind of an interaction between these two various mo- these models that would also involve some actual at some points contact with um, with the two of you yeah is um, that something that's like potentially interesting to you you know we've been asked to you know start teaching online and you know we we've, we've talked about doing a number of things wherein we sort of put back on our professor hats uh, in a more formal way but that particular question 
has never come our way before, nor had I thought of it. And uh, it's very intriguing. Yeah, I have to say, I'm, I'm, that's I'm uh, both of us. You know, you heard it here right now as you asked us. Went, oh, huh, interesting. I think that actually could work. It's not immediately clear to me what the interactive thing would be, whether or not you know there should be writing prompts. You know, this is this is a part of me that I haven't used since since I haven't been a professor. But I used to really have a lot of fun with the architecting of curriculum and 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 um getting people to write in ways that they were able to explore pieces of themselves they didn't know existed and you know i don't know a lot of what i did in the classroom doesn't scale to larger groups um but uh but there's real potential there and i i guess i'd be interested maybe i'll if i can turn it back on on your students john mm-hmm. um if if they have any suggestions as to what kinds of interaction that might look like. So you said sort of a hybrid of two models. I'm sort of curious how they understand the two models and what kinds of styles of interaction they would be interested in, because that sounds like a... Yeah, I'll definitely, I'll get you, I'll get you more info. I I know that they mentioned that a few of them had taken like an, an art class online and that they had learned more in this class in... I think it was like 14 or 15 weeks that they had learned more in this class than they learned in, in two years in an art school. Mm. And that what it was, was you paid, it wasn't cheap. I mean, you paid like you had to, but it's a hundred percent worth it. You'd pay like a couple grand for the class. And then you would, it would be kind of a mixture of, of reading, of stuff that you would listen to, like like kind of almost like podcasts, like you would walk around, go for a walk in the woods and like listen to it on your headphones. And then part of it would be uh, taped kind of lectures on particular, like, okay, you know, here's the Omega, you know, pr- principle or whatever, like, you know, going through like particular concepts. And then there would be a component where you actually are live on something like Zoom or something like that, where you actually have interactions. And then at least one time, um, over the course of the, the you know the semester, you have an actual one-on-one with the with the prof and just the two of you, where you, you know may only be like fifteen twenty minutes, but but in the end, it it seems to scale. And the thing is, is ideas like this were considered crazy before the pandemic. Now they seem, eh, yeah, maybe we could do that. You know, like it's actually, yep. you know, a lot of things seem more like doable and reasonable. But anyway, I would, yeah. if you ever did something like this, I would absolutely, uh, I would enroll in your class. <laughs> I would, if, you, if you, if you based a class on the book, you know, so that it, you know, it eat a chapter a week, let's say, or a module, uh, I think that would just be wonderful. But yeah, you make anyway, a good point. It's interesting. Yeah. Well, anyway, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and thank you for, uh, for writing this book and it's, um, it, it's a really, really great book, and like Aristotle's Ethics, it, you know, like I said initially, it really comes through that this is the product of years and years of teaching because it's you can tell that it's been distilled. It's kind of been, you know, you've tried almost like a comedian trying out a bit, and they, you know, they work it out. Like you've tried out these things like with different audiences that come up with, you know, your uh, your sort of book that covers all these different things. It's uh, it's wonderful. And I, I'm sorry about everything that happened to you at Evergreen. I'm sure that thoroughly sucked, but I I can't help the suspicion that this book wouldn't exist if it wasn't for that horrible thing. So so maybe this is the pearl um that 
you know the pearl of great price that uh, emerged from all the irritation of that bullshit. So maybe well, you know. You. <laughs> I, th- I maybe. think I think we're actually it's taken some years, but I think we're both kind of coming around to that position ourselves. Yeah, and I must say it's wonderful uh, to hear those observations from somebody who's obviously a thoroughly dedicated and excellent educator. Um, so. Well, because I because I am that, and my wife is that. I, your story was especially painful to me because I know if somebody took that away from me right now at 47, ugh, that would really fucking sting. <laughs> I mean, that would really, because it's like a central piece of, you know, what gives my life purpose and meaning. And and I'm, it's very obvious to me that that was the case for the two of you, you know, probably even more than, than me actually. But it's, yeah, it's very, it's it's something, somebody who doesn't, work with young people in that capacity and and see how magical and and amazing and interesting that can be and they can't understand you know they just hear oh they lost their you know their job <laughs> no 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 <laughs> it's so yeah. much it's like right. it's like it's like having like a like a death of a child or something it's really i mean you must have gone through a lot of grieving about that i mean it's just Anyway, I don't want to, I don't want to touch on a difficult topic, but like it it must have been really and I I'm really sorry that happened to you. But uh, appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, appreciate it, but as you say, I think um ultimately we reach many more people and what we what we lost is exactly as you say. I mean, not just the career and but the you know, we're not every quarter now meeting new young people who bring into our lives surprising things that we could not imagine. And so we have to figure out how to how to keep bringing that 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 novelty and serendipity in through other ways. All right. Well, thank you so much, and uh, we'll definitely have to have you on the podcast again at some point. And I hope you, I hope you um, write a sequel to this at some point. That would be terrific. It's really been a pleasure talking with you. It sure has. All right. Take care. Be well. Bye.